Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I want to talk about this history of enslavement and of native genocide and of lynching and segregation, not because I'm interested in punishing America. I want to liberate us. I really do believe there is something better waiting for us. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. An exercise I try to do with this podcast when we're trying to figure out who to have on it is we ask, I ask, whose name would I be excited to see pop up in my own podcast feed? Who do I wish I could hear a conversation with? And that's usually a good guide to who do I wish I could have a conversation with. And as I've been asking that question over the past couple of weeks, the answer is completely obvious. Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson has been on the show before. He's one of my favorite guests. We've re-released that episode before as a best of. He's the founder and the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. He's a clinical professor at New York University School of Law. He is a MacArthur genius. He was played by Michael B. Jordan in the movie Just Mercy. He's the author of the book Just Mercy. He is somebody who has done the most remarkable work, somebody who has made the world better. You can tell as I explain this that he's somebody I personally admire quite a bit both for the the practical work he's been able to do, getting people who are wrongly convicted off of death row, um, working in the criminal justice system, but also using that as a way to understand race relations in America and to become, I think, a, a necessary moral voice. And so we asked him back on the show, and to my great delight, he said yes, to, to have a conversation that's been one that he's been talking about for a long time and, and one that I think more of us need to have, which is, okay, we talk now about having a conversation about race in America. We talk now about what it would mean to confront these old sins and these current inequalities, but what would it mean? What would it look like? What does that conversation require from us? How would we structure it? And there are ideas out there, truth and justice uh, commissions and various approaches. These are things he's been thinking about for a long time. And so I wanted to try to get uh, him to be specific, to help us be specific, to imagine what having that national dialogue, that national confrontation might look like. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. 
Let me just start with the the normal human question. How are you doing? (laughs) It's been really intense. Uh, I would not have predicted uh, that if I had four months with no travel, which is the first time that's happened in like 30 years, uh, that I would be as overwhelmed and as challenged and um, as pushed as I've felt over the last uh, two months, I think the enormity of managing operations in the middle of a pandemic, which is just unnerving for everybody because there's still so much we don't know. It's hard to make good decisions. I like all the information before I make a decision about something, and it's really hard to do that. And there's a sort of a, a, some stress with that because we have a lot of employees and I feel responsible for their health and well-being. But we also feel responsible for pushing the country forward with content and information and advocacy. And then on top of that, these horrific instances of police violence that have just been so scarring and disturbing and painful. And the reaction to that has been both overwhelming and exciting and worrisome. So it's just been a lot. I've been really struck by how exhausting it's been to try to manage all of these new issues that we've never had to deal with before after being in this work for so long. It is amazing given the emotional toll of the work that that you've done that it could get yet more exhausting. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's right. Uh, I Once I reconciled myself uh, to the fact that there wouldn't be much travel and a lot of things have been canceled, I thought, oh, well, this will actually be a little bit of a break. And It's been far from that, but it's also been encouraging to see so much activity, uh, so much possibility for transformation and change. That's been very affirming and very exciting. So it's, it's been overwhelming, but it's also been energizing to imagine what we might now be able to do. One other question of this nature, I, I've always imagined, because I think a lot about what's going to happen when Michael B. Jordan plays me in the movie of my life as a <laughs> blogger and then podcaster, how, how the next morning when you wake up after that that opens nationwide, just how differently people will treat you, um, how all of the problems in your life will be solved. But but you're on the other side of that. What happens after you've been played in a, in a, in a big movie? Like, how does it change you or your life or does it not? Is it anticlimactic? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I think the whole thing was surreal for me. Um, I just think entertainment is its own world. And I spent a lot of time with Michael B., with Jamie, with the other cast members, Brie Larson, Rob Morgan, Tim Blake Nelson. And just that world is so different than the world I'm used to. I mean, we would go places and there's just so many people and people are so desperately trying to just connect, just to be in a picture and all of that. There's a different ethic about what's important in that space. And so it was hard for me initially to kind of bring my own priorities, my own narrative into that world. Michael B. and Jamie and everybody connected to the film, they were so great because they they wanted to give me that platform. And so that's been, that was exciting. That was energizing. It is sort of surreal to be much more recognizable and to lose some anonymity. But, you know, we've been doing this work for a really long time. I'm just excited that people are watching the film, that they're responding to the film. We've gotten thousands of emails and letters from people who have expressed that they were moved by the story. Lots more people have read the book, and that's been wonderful because the film only talks about a small part of what's in the book. So I'm I'm 
I'm thrilled that there's a consciousness uh, emerging from these stories that motivates people to want to do more. It's hard personally, just because I I'm not I'm not used to you know going through places and having to worry about being you know stopped by people who want photographs and things like that. But you spend a lot of time with you know people like Michael B. Jordan, and that's bound to happen. That's for sure. Well, then I'm sorry about this podcast because my experience is after people appear on it, they just can never get a moment of peace again. So <laughs> it's only getting worse from here. So I don't I don't have an easy transition to to what I want to talk with you about today. So I'm just gonna gonna dive right in here. But I've been following a number of speeches you've been giving, interviews you've been giving, and thinking about the way you talk about the confrontation we need to have with our history the modalities in which we could have that confrontation and, and, and what it could lead to. And, and so I thought I'd start with this question. What is a healthy relationship for a society to have with its own history? Well, I, I think it begins with honesty, with truth-telling, knowing the actual history. If you don't know your history, you can't really begin to understand what your obligations are, what your responsibilities are, what you should fear, what you should celebrate, what's honorable and what's not honorable. And the big problem we have in the United States is that we don't actually know our history. We don't know about the centuries of racial injustice. We don't know about the native genocide. You say native genocide and people have no idea what you're talking about. They think you're saying something radical But if you just understand our history and how Europeans came to this continent and millions of Native people, Indigenous people, died as a result of that intervention, we killed so many people through famine and war and disease, and we forced them off their lands. And once you know that history, you begin to think differently about who we are. Half the states in America are named after native words, uh, but we we force the people away and we use that rhetoric and we called them savages and we got comfortable with creating a constitution that talks about equality and justice for all, but didn't apply uh, to millions of indigenous people who were on this land. And so until you understand that history, you can't begin thinking about, well, what are your responsibilities now? What are your obligations now? What would it take to recover from that kind of violence, that kind of destruction that we did to millions of indigenous people. And of course, that failure to acknowledge that history is what makes us vulnerable to the two and a half centuries of of slavery that follows. And it just seems to me that we've invested a lot of time in creating false narratives about slavery, about enslavers, about the South, about the North, about emancipation, about abolitionists, many of whom didn't believe in slavery, but they also didn't believe in racial equality. And the legacy of that is very different than the legacy that we've been taught. So for me, it begins with honesty. If you've done something wrong to someone else and you genuinely don't know what you've done wrong, you're not going to be able to fully reconcile with that person. You're not going to be able to adequately apologize. You're not going to be able to say the things you need to say to create a path toward recovery. You have to know what you did. And once you understand what you did, you can then begin to calibrate all the things that have to happen for you to try to make peace, for you to recover, to to create fellowship again. And we have committed ourselves in this country seemingly to silence about our history, 
to ignorant about our history, to denying our history. And that's the first part of this relationship that has to be repaired. We've got to be willing now to talk honestly about who we are and how we got here. There's a way when we begin having this conversation about history that a national identity that gets taken for granted in other contexts begins to dissolve very fast. When we say we, when we say you. After 9-11 or during an election, people talk about America as a we. No matter when their ancestors got here, they tend to associate themselves with its founding, its lineages, its victories. We won World War II. But then you get into its misdeeds, its injustices, its sins. And the idea that there'd be a, a we here or a you becomes very difficult for people. Well, I wasn't here. I didn't do any of that. My grandparents came here from Ireland in 1942. Yeah. And so what? how do you how do you deal with the pronouns in this conversation? Who is talking? Who is listening? Who owes what to whom? Like, what? How, how do people associate into this conversation? Where do they find themselves given that we are here and not in the then? Well, I think you're exactly right. There is a tendency when it comes to mistakes, to misconduct, to abuse, to disconnect, to disassociate yourself from those things while we run to embrace every aspect of achievement. We won the most medals at the United States Olympics. Well, you didn't win any medals. You, you weren't competing, but we, we do invoke ownership. And so I believe it's important for anyone who identifies as an American, as a citizen of this country, to not simply embrace all the things about American history that we think are glorious and wonderful, but to also acknowledge and accept the things about our history that are tragic and devastating. So that we has to be the way we talk about that part of our history. And what's interesting for me, when I look at the experience of African Americans in particular, you know, Black people have been so committed to this country. They've been so committed to the identity of an America that is committed to equality and justice. They were so dedicated to that idea. I think about 250 years of enslavement that Black people endured. First, being kidnapped from the African continent and trafficked uh, to this country, put in chains, brutalized, mistreated, abused. Women were raped. There was daily humiliation and degradation, the violence of slavery. And then there was deceptions. Enslavers didn't even want to know, want enslaved people to know that the Civil War was raging. Uh, we have many places where they refused to tell them that they were free. And that kind of abuse and mistreatment finally ends uh, in 1865, after the Civil War, after the ratification of the 13th Amendment. And instead of seeking revenge or retribution or violence against those who had enslaved them, Emancipated Black people said, we're going to make peace here. We're going to make community here. We're going to commit to education. We're going to commit to voting. We're going to become ideal American citizens. And when you think about all of the brutality and violence and abuse that Black people suffered, and they still were willing to live in harmony with those who had abused them, it says something remarkable about the power of we if we actually believe it. They believed in an America, and they got no credit for that. What they got instead was more abuse. 80% of the Black people who were eligible to vote 
after the passage of the 15th Amendment, had registered to vote by 1868. Three years into freedom, there was no community of people more committed to voting and becoming a full citizen than African-Americans. Black people made education the priority. That's why all of these schools emerged, and they were so dedicated to that. They wanted land so they could work and labor like other communities. And there was this deep commitment to this country. And for that, what they got was lawlessness and terror and violence. That period between 1865 and 1877 is one of the most violent periods in American history. We've just put out a new report on Reconstruction that documents uh, nearly 2,000 Black people were lynched, mass lynchings. The Supreme Court turned their back on Black people. Congress turned their back on Black people. Those abolitionists that were so committed to ending slavery turned their back on Black people. White Southerners saw emancipation as a crime and white supremacy as a duty. And by 1877, Black people who had been emancipated were once again marginalized, exploited, abused, subjected to terror and trauma, and once again being violated. And yet, for a hundred years, they still believed enough in the American idea that they would continue fighting. They would continue finding ways to contribute And you saw those contributions in World War I where people went to Europe and risked their lives for this country. And in World War II and in the Korean War, and when they got back from war, they'd be targeted for violence by white supremacists who feared their American military service might cause them to believe that they were an equal. And this whole history, Dr. King, what he does with Rosa Parks and others in the 1950s and 60s is so rooted in a commitment to the American identity, and yet no credit is given. So for me, the model that African-Americans have established with this country is that even when things are not good, even when things are abusive, we invoke this idea of an American identity. It means that we absolutely have to be willing to acknowledge the things that are harmful, that are injurious. Uh, In the American South, you know, I just walking around the other day and we have these very misguided history monuments here. And uh, the, the one about enslavement, uh, this is what frustrates me in Blazing Light Montgomery, you'll see something that characterizes each era of American history. And they'll talk about the period between 1820 and 1860, and they'll use language like the era of antebellum prosperity. And they'll talk about how wonderful it was to be an entrepreneur during this 40-year time period. And they won't even acknowledge slavery. And to the extent that they do acknowledge slavery, slavery they'll say something like, well, only one in three white Southerners owned slaves, as if somehow that isolated the horror and the injury. And it's that misconception of we, of I, that, that, that corrupts our ability to deal honestly with this. The entire American South benefited from the institution of slavery. The entire United States did. The rail lines that allowed those companies in the North to, to become industrialists, the uh, industries that gave rise to all of that growth during the first half of the 20th century, all of it had its roots in this forced labor stolen from Black bodies. And so we have to understand that, uh, to really be honest, uh, there is no way of saying they did that and they did that and they did that. If we're going to claim American citizenship and American identity, uh, there has to be a willingness to say we, just like there's that willingness to say we when an American does something great when the Olympic team succeeds, when the basketball teams do well. I listened to you be interviewed at MoMA, 
And you said something there that I wrote down. And since I wrote it down, I keep staring at it and having this almost psychedelic experience falling into, into the sentence. You write, or you said, I'm sorry, we need to engage everyone in a meaningful conversation about what it would take to cleanse ourselves of the legacy of slavery. And when I heard that the first time, I'm like, yes, of course. And then I realized that almost every word in that sentence could take a like a like a college course, a lifetime to <laughs> unpack. And so I want to go through it because we began really with the first word in that sentence, we, who is we. But let me go to to, to one of the next pieces of it, which is engage everyone. The conversations we have in this country, to the extent we have them at all, are polarized, are fractured, they operate off of different premises. How do we engage everyone in anything, much less, or maybe more specifically, a conversation about America's foundational sins? Again, I think it it begins with an understanding of what actually happened. If you understand that the true evil of American slavery wasn't the involuntary servitude or the forced labor. It wasn't the bondage. If you understand that the real evil of slavery was the ideology that we created, that Black people are less deserving, less worthy, less human, less evolved. If you understand that's the problem of slavery, then it becomes easier to understand how we don't really end slavery with the passage of the 13th Amendment, how in 1865, and I say this a lot when I give talks, you know, it's my view that slavery doesn't end, it just evolves, because we never deal with the fundamental character that made enslavement so horrific, which is this ideology of white supremacy. Once you understand that, then you can continue to see that legacy play out in disenfranchisement, in exclusion of Black people uh, from jobs in the North and West. In the 1950s, when banks don't give Black people mortgage loans, they don't help veterans who are Black move into the middle class. You begin to see it in the 1960s when Black communities are targeted. You see it in the 70s and 80s when we declare this war on drugs, but we target uh, Black communities. We, you see it in the ways in which police violence manifests itself. And once you understand that, then you begin to understand that you are implicated in this story. You are implicated in this moment that we live in where the smog created by our history of racial injustice is still in the air and we're still breathing it in. And it's corrupting our worldview, just like it corrupted the worldview of people coming before us. So I, I, it does begin with that understanding. And then what but, happens? But, uh, just, I do want to push you just very quickly, though, on the question of how do you engage people? What is the locus? Like, I've heard you talk about truth and reconciliation commissions. Like, what is the structure in which people are pulled into this conversation so they can get to that understanding? I think it's local, it's intimate, it's familial, it's communal, it's statewide, it's nationwide. I think every entity, every institution has to commit to this process of truth telling. I keep stressing the truth because I, I, I think it's really important that people understand that if you're genuinely engaged in recovering from human rights abuses, you have to commit to truth-telling first. You can't jump to reconciliation. You can't jump to reparation. You can't jump to restoration until you tell the truth. Until you know the nature of the injuries, you can't actually speak to uh, the kind of remedies that are going to be necessary. And, and for me, that that's very immediate. So I believe 
colleges and universities need to have their own truth-telling process to document the ways in which they contributed to the history of racial inequality, the history of white supremacy. And there are lots of colleges and universities that have done that. If you were a college and university functioning in the first half of the 20th century, there are things you should acknowledge you did to sustain racial inequality. Corporations, banks, insurance companies, all played a critical role in allowing racial injustice and white supremacy to prevail throughout the 20th century. And I believe you don't have to go outside of your own institution. You can begin with your own truth-telling. You can tell your own story about the ways in which you are complicit. I've been talking to the NBA. In 1946, the NBA forms, they would not allow Black people to play in that league. And when the first Black player comes, they don't open their arms and say, yes, we're going to support you. They do everything they can to try to appeal to the segregationists that are mad about the entrance of that player. Now we see a league dominated by Black players that generates billions of dollars uh, for for the, the the people who own these teams and for all of the uh, cons- you know all of the interests the collateral interests that make money from that but they haven't been willing to talk about that history of racial injustice of racial inequality and so you don't ever feel like this league is for you if you're a black player when there's this denying uh, the story the history and and for me that's got to be the way it works. There are places in the American South that have to address things that were unique to this region. We didn't allow Black people to vote uh, in many states in the American South for a century. It took blood and violence and federal troops and congressional acts just to give people their right to vote. And there was no shame about denying people their right to vote. That's the thing that breaks my heart is that you know, we passed the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. We passed the Voting Rights Law in 1965. White Southerners are never required to say, oh my God, we were so wrong to disenfranchise Black people. What happens in 1865 is we never required of white Southerners to say, oh, we were so wrong to enslave Black people. We, you know, The North wins the Civil War and the South wins the Narrative War because not only do they not apologize, they actually double down and say what we did uh, by enslaving people and forming this Confederacy was noble and glorious and honorable. And when that's your mindset, you don't get to the right place. And that didn't happen uh, when lynching uh, becomes less prominent in the 1950s. It didn't happen in the 1960s after the passage of the civil rights laws. It hasn't happened yet. And so I want to say to the state of Alabama, will you, will you reckon with your history of enslavement, your history of lynching, your history of segregation? What are you going to say? What are you going to, will you reckon with it? And if you reckon with it, the kind of conversation that will happen after that is very different. In 1965, we should have said, if, if you're really sorry about all of this abuse and disenfranchisement, if you really want to do something to recover from a century of a disenfranchisement, state of Alabama ought to say, we're going to register every Black person when they turn to 18. We no longer want the burden to be on Black people who had been discouraged and abused and turned away and humiliated and threatened for trying to vote. We're going to take that burden on. We're going to register every Black person. We're going to say at the University of Alabama, University of Georgia, and some of these schools that were adamantly opposed to integration, whose governors came to the universities to stand in opposition to federal law in the 1960s. If those universities really want to reckon and they understand that history, then maybe they're going to say, you know what, we don't think Black people who are residents of the state uh, that we have our university in should have to pay tuition. We think we should take that on as a way of recovering, responding to this history 
of, of, of exclusion and at the university level. And you take that, banks uh, could be thinking very differently about what they owe uh, African-Americans in this country when they reckon with the history of exclusion and bias. Uh, the military could be thinking about what it owes to Black veterans when it allowed banks and American institutions to turn veterans away uh, because of the color of their skin. Uh, uh, companies have that same responsibility. The government has that same responsibility. But for me, it begins with the truth-telling. Because when you start telling the truth, you recognize things. You've seen a little bit of that. You know, in Georgetown, they discover these things about the legacy of slavery. It's happening a little bit, but not in the kind of engaged and invested way. So for me, it's really what is the truth of our institution as it relates to the history of racial inequality? That's the question that gets asked. What do we need to discover about our own institution, our own community? The reason why we do lynching markers, we put markers at lynching sites uh, across the country, is we want communities to reckon with their history when it comes to this uh, racial terrorism. And most people have no idea how many Black people were lynched in their community. They, they hear the story and they're shocked. Uh, but the only reason why they're hearing that story is because a bunch of people are now committed to truth-telling. And we put these markers up because we want there to be some visible symbol of this history, of this moment, so that you're not allowed to live in that community and be ignorant about that history of violence. And so for me, it's very, very concrete. It is how do we, what, how do we frame uh, a, an investigation into the truth of our history? What is the truth of our history? What is our institution's role? What is our community's role in allowing this landscape to be created that is so shattered by uh, racial injustice and white supremacy? One of the tricky things here is that there are many institutions, many places that don't want to have that conversation, that, that resist it. And so something I'm always interested in is what is an institution that could start? Um, we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that have happened in other countries. Uh, here, Barbara Lee, Representative Barbara Lee, who's actually my representative out in Oakland, um, she's proposed a Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Do you think that is a model that could work here? And, and how do you imagine it looking? And uh, maybe even for those who don't know them, like what are Truth and Reconciliation Committees? What is that process? Well, I, there are countries that have engaged in national efforts at truth-telling. Uh, we saw that in South Africa after the collapse of apartheid, uh, with the truth and reconciliation process there. It was very powerful. Uh, the victims of apartheid had an opportunity to tell their stories, to give accounts of that. The perpetrators were also required to speak to their role. It was um, an important process. Uh, we've seen it in Rwanda where the victims of the genocide have been invited to give voice to their suffering, their loss. Uh, the prisons were filled with perpetrators of that violence, and there was a reckoning around it. Obviously, in Germany, we've seen dramatic transformation of that country's landscape so that you now have stones and symbols and memorials and monuments throughout uh, cities like Berlin. There's a Holocaust memorial in the center of Berlin. Every student in Germany as an elementary school student is required to go to the Holocaust memorials and to learn that history. Police officers are required to study that history. And so it can be effective at the national level. And I'm very supportive of Representative Lee's commission, but I want to caution against anything simplistic being sufficient. That is, the difference between South Africa and Rwanda and Germany and the United States is that there was a transfer of power 
in each of those countries. Black South Africans took over South Africa once they had the vote. It's a black majority country. So they could actually orchestrate the parameters of that process. And Rwanda, the victims of the genocide, ultimately regained power through a military intervention. And so the parameters of that truth-telling was shaped by people who had been victimized. In Germany, the Germans lost the war. We wouldn't see all of that iconography honoring victims of the Holocaust in Berlin had the Germans prevailed. And so with that transfer of power, we had the opportunity to do some things that we don't have in this country. In this country, the people who were the perpetrators of so much of this bigotry and violence are still in power. There was no transfer in power after the Civil War, after the era of lynching, even after the civil rights movement. And because of that, it's going to have to be much more atomized. I think we should have a National Truth-Telling Commission, but that is not uh, going to be an excuse for banks and schools and corporations and industries and police departments and localities from engaging in their own truth-telling. And I think part of the cell, Ezra, has got to be rooted in a sort of a moral understanding of what it means to be healthy. I mean, that's what Dr. King was about. He knew he didn't have the power uh, that came with the collapse of apartheid or came with the military intervention following the Rwandan genocide or came with losing the war. He had to use the language of morality, of ethics, of love uh, to get people to wrestle with things that they wouldn't otherwise wrestle with. And, uh, you know, I think of the church as a perfect place to begin this process, uh, because certainly in the Christian tradition and in most traditions, we view confession, we view acknowledgement, we view the process of admitting to wrongdoing as an essential step uh, toward redemption. In my faith tradition, you can't just walk in my church and say, I want to heaven, I want all the good stuff, I want to be you know, part of that number. I want to be all saved and all of that, but I don't want to talk about anything bad I've done. It doesn't work like that. You've got to repent. You've got to confess. And they tell you that the confession and the repentance isn't something you should fear, but it's something you should embrace because through that process comes a kind of awareness and awakening and even a cleansing that allows you to embrace and understand what redemption truly means, what recovery really means, what salvation really means. And yet in this country, the church, the white evangelical church in particular, that believes so deeply in that narrative has not really confessed all the ways in which it was complicit in the 50s and 60s in resisting and rejecting segregation, all the ways it was complicit in facilitating those mob lynchings that would sometimes take place right outside the church uh, when people would be tortured, hasn't really confessed the ways in which enslavement set up many of these institutions. And even now, uh, where we see police violence and we see all of this pain and suffering, we see all of these inequalities, is strangely silent about the burden created by our history of racial injustice. And, and so I think we have to try to get people to understand that when we confront this history, we don't have to fear punishment. And that's the thing that I, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I defend people who've done things that are terrible. And I'm persuaded that each uh, of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I believe that for my clients. I believe it for people who listen to you. But I also believe it uh, for folks who have done terrible things. And because of that, 
I want to talk about this history of enslavement and of native genocide and of lynching and segregation, not because I'm interested in punishing America. I want to liberate us. I really do believe there is something better waiting for us. And the promise of that better thing, I think there's something that feels more like freedom. There's something that feels more like equality. There's something that feels more like justice than we have yet to experience in this country. And if we are committed to this idea of America, if we believe in this idea of America, then we ought to figure out how we're going to get to that promise that we have been denied because we have been unwilling to acknowledge the past. That's the beauty that awaits us if we're willing uh, to take that step. And I think that's where sometimes people don't have clarity. They are so, we're such a punitive nation. We have done so much to punish so many. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We're, we've caused everybody in this country to fear acknowledgement, to fear apology. We've got a political culture where our politicians never say, I'm sorry. They're afraid that if they say, I'm sorry, they'll look weak. I believe that people who say, I'm sorry, are people who have the capacity to become strong. You know, loving relationships endure, they survive, they grow, they strengthen. When you're willing to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's how you build something lasting and powerful. But we've created a political culture where we don't like to acknowledge the things we do wrong. We've created a Uh, an economic culture where people don't admit to mistakes and that resistance to acknowledgement is part of the problem we have to overcome, which is why we do have to model that. And I, you know, we opened this museum in Montgomery. We opened this memorial that is dedicated to thousands of of victims of, of racial terror lynchings. And for me, it's been so affirming to see people come into that space, Black and white people, Many of them are in tears. Many of them will wrap their arms around the monuments that represent the communities where they're from, and you'll just see them sobbing. But through that pain, there is beauty that emerges. You begin to see the possibility of of restoration. You know, I tell the story about uh, we had, you know, we do these projects where we actually invite community members to go to lynching sites and gather soil. And we give them a jar with the lynching victim's name and the date of the lynching. And we give them a little implement to dig the soil. And we, we give them a memo, tells them about the lynching, where the site uh, took place. And we did one a few years ago. And this middle-aged Black woman got her memo. She got her jar. She got her implement. And she was sort of scared to go by herself. Her sister was supposed to come and she didn't show up. But she found her courage and she got in her car, drove down to this location in West Alabama. Very scary place. It was on a dirt road. But she resolved that she was going to dig soil where this lynching took place. And and she parked her car and she walked across this dirt road and found the spot, got down on her knees to begin digging the soil when a truck drove by. And there was this uh, white guy in the truck and he stared at her as he drove by and slowed down. And she watched the truck stop about 100 meters past her and then turn around and drive back by again. And the man looked at her again while while she was uh, on her knees there. And then he parked the truck and he got out of the truck, big white guy, and he starts walking toward her. And she told me later that when he started walking toward her, she was afraid. And we tell people when they're doing these collections that they don't have to tell anybody what they're doing. If they want to say they're just getting uh, dirt for their garden, they're allowed to say that. And that's what she was going to do. And this man walked up to her and he said, what are you doing? And she told me that when he asked her that, 
She said, something got a hold of me, Mr. Stevenson. And I looked at that man and I said, I'm digging soil because this is where a black man was lynched in 1937. I'm going to honor his life today. And she said she started digging real fast because she didn't know what was going to happen. And the man just stood there. And then eventually the man asked, he said, does that paper talk about the lynching? And she said, it does. And then he said, can I read it? And she gave the man the paper. And the man started reading while she kept digging. And finally, the man finished reading and he put the paper down. And she told me he shocked her because he asked her, he said, would it be okay if I helped you? And she said, of course. And the man got down on his knees next to her and she offered him the implement to dig the soil. And he said, no, 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 no. You use that. I'll just use my hands. And and then she said, the man started throwing his hands into the soil and picking up the soil and putting it in the jar. And he kept throwing his hands into the soil and he kept putting them in the jar. And she said he did it with such commitment and such conviction that it moved her. And before she knew it, she had tears running down her face. And the man stopped and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm upsetting you. And she said, no, 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 you're blessing me. And they kept digging together, him with his hands and her with this implement. And they got uh, to the top of the jar. The soil was almost, uh, the jar was almost full. And she noticed that the man had slowed down and she looked at him and she could see his shoulders shaking. And then she saw tears running down his face and she stopped and she put her hand on his shoulder and she said, are you okay? And she said, the man looked at her and he said, no, no, I'm not okay. He said, I'm just so worried that my grandfather might have been one of the people who lynched that man. And she said, they both sat on that roadside in tears. And they finally finished. And he stood up and said, I want to take a picture of you holding the jar. And she said, I want to take a picture of you holding the jar. And they took pictures of one another holding this jar. And she brought that man back to Montgomery to be with her when she put the jar in our exhibit. And You know, beautiful things like that don't always happen when you tell the truth. But until we tell the truth, we deny ourselves the opportunity for beauty. You know, justice can be beautiful. Reconciliation can be beautiful. Repair can be beautiful. It's powerful to, to actually experience redemption. And we deny ourselves that when we insist on denying our broken past, our ugly past, our racist past, when we insist on avoiding the truth. And because there hasn't been a military intervention, because we are not a black majority in this country, because uh, there isn't hopefully uh, some war that transitions power, we're going to have to compel people, call people, push people to see the beauty that comes with truth-telling and personal relationships. You can't overcome abuse. You can't overcome violence. You can't over come victimization if you're unwilling to reckon with all that you have suffered. And that's the power. That's the only power we possess uh, when it comes to pushing this country. But it's a a kind of power that is extraordinary. And that's why uh, Dr. King and so many others uh, did what they did. And I don't want to underestimate our capacity for facilitating the truth-telling that we are talking about just because it's difficult. Nothing good has ever come from things that are easy. You know, to do hard things, uh, you gotta you gotta confront them, and so there's there's no way forward at this moment in our history that doesn't involve some discomfort, and right? that doesn't involve involve some inconvenience, and we just have to find the capacity and the courage uh, to to embrace that. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, but it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I, of course, cover politics. And what I'm watching happen right now is a president who has failed to protect the country from a pandemic virus, decide that maybe his way to re-election is to marshal them in defense of statues to people who committed treason against the very same country that he seeks to lead. And I mention this because one of the arguments you will hear from people who do not like the idea that we should spend time in this history that we should focus on 1619 instead of on the Declaration of Independence, that we should have these conversations in workplaces, in friend groups and families, even among those who think that the problem that needs to be addressed today is real. There is an argument that truth does not lead to reconciliation, that it leads to division, that spending time in the worst moments of our collective past 
only inflames the tensions of our present. And so what what do you tell those people who who look at how these issues can be weaponized and simply fear that we are not as evolved or decent as you or the two individuals in that story and such that these conversations or these commissions even would do as much harm as good? I, I just think it's a perspective rooted in fear. And you cannot get to a healthy place uh, if you allow yourself to be governed by fear. The political moment that we are in is a consequence of people governing through the politics of fear and anger. And when we allow ourselves to make decisions based in fear, based in anger, we tolerate things we should never tolerate. We accept things we should never accept. Uh, Go anywhere in the world where people are being abused, mistreated, killed, And if you ask the abusers why they do what they do, they can give you a narrative of fear and anger. And that's why we have to resist that. It's powerful. Believe me, it's powerful. And we've seen that during the course of this pandemic. Uh, But I just think that this notion that truth-telling leads to division is not really valid when you look at history. That is, if we actually engage in truth-telling, it causes all of us to think differently about this. You know, this, you can take this, this whole question of Confederate iconography. If you understand that someone did something horrific, that someone did something tragic and terrible, if someone did something abusive, then there's no moral requirement that you honor them anyway. People just don't have that understanding. They were told that these people were honorable. And, and so the truth-telling is to really complicate that narrative. You know, we have a statue of Marion Sims in front of our state capitol. He was the he's so-called father of gynecology. And until very recently, in medical schools across this country, people were taught to revere this man. And even though it wasn't new information, the information about all of the medical experimentation he did on enslaved Black women got more prominence. And it's why we have to focus on the reality. We have to focus on the complete story. And when these accounts began to emerge about how he wouldn't give enslaved Black women anesthesia because he didn't think that Black people felt pain, and he would cut on these women, and he would pull on them, and he would destroy their bodies to kind of learn things about gynecology. And then, of course, he would use what he learned to help white women Uh, survive pregnancies that they might not otherwise survive, to have successful pregnancies that they might not otherwise have. He was celebrated and valorized. But if we ignore all of that medical experimentation, if we ignore that brutality, we're just not being honest. Now, once you understand those things, you think differently about whether he is someone who should be honored. And that's why the statue in Central Park comes down. And I don't think anyone can credibly argue Oh no, that that statue should stay there because he's he's a wonderful person. You you can't do that. I mean, this is what's powerful to me about nations like Germany. You know, Germany lost the war, but they still weren't required uh, to commit to honoring and uh, symbolizing all of the tragedy of the Holocaust. That came over time, and there were a lot of Germans uh, who didn't want to do it. They were still implicated. They felt like there'd never be a Germany that could lift its head up if they dwelled on the past. And there was this effort to get people past the fear. And now you see a German state 
that we can visit. You can go there and I can go there. I wouldn't be able to go there if they were unwilling to acknowledge the Holocaust. I wouldn't feel safe in a nation that did something that destructive, that tragic, that was unwilling to talk about it. You know, I go there now and I see those symbols everywhere, and it actually makes me feel like this is a place uh, I can honor, I can recognize. There are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. It would be unconscionable in Germany for someone to say, oh, let's put up a monument to the architects of the Third Reich, uh, to the architects of the Holocaust. Unconscionable. And yet in this country, we think taking down comparable monuments to the Confederacy is divisive. Well, it's only divisive because we actually haven't reckoned with that history. There are white Southerners who did honorable things, and we can name schools after them and streets after them and buildings after them, and we can all be proud of the honorable thing they did. But to honor people who did dishonorable things, it's fascinating to me at Penn State. You know, Joe Paterno was Joe Pa. He was the father of college football. He was loved by everybody. And a scandal involving sexual violence of children was enough for people to say, oh, you know, we can't have that there anymore. And that's a lot more controversial because of his role in that. So we do understand the power of truth-telling. We understand that truth-telling can actually bring people together. After 9-11, we were all committed to reckoning uh, with the violence and the tragedy of that. We have a 9-11 memorial in less than 15 years, and I think we need it. And we're okay with that. It actually brought the country together in a way because we experienced something tragic. But if we're unwilling to be honest about the multiple ways in which terrorism has also shaped the lives of Black people in this country, then we're not going to actually get to that same place. So I don't accept that truth-telling is divisive. I don't accept that we can't find a way to reckon with this history and move forward. I I just have seen, you know, it happened in the 1960s. Oh, we can't have black and white kids going to school together. And there was a period of time, it didn't last very long, where we actually had integrated public high schools. And you saw black and white people playing sports together. You saw this moment of coming together that really allowed communities to move forward in ways that would not be true today. And we still have lots of ways, lots of places where we can show how integration has succeeded in creating opportunities for all kinds of people. College football in, in, in the American South, because I live here, I talk about it a lot. University Alabama's got one of the best college football programs in the country. Auburn, strong college football program. Georgia, LSU, these schools dominate college football in America. And it wouldn't be possible, it wouldn't be achievable if we hadn't gotten past the fear of racial integration in our academic institutions. It's because you have Black players on that field at Alabama and Tuscaloosa, at Auburn, uh, at Georgia, at LSU, that we can now celebrate the success of these programs. And I think people recognize the benefit of a successful program. You see it on Saturdays when 100,000 people, down here it's like religion. College football is the heart of much of the cultural life. And if you had said 50 years ago, 60 years ago, well, to do that, we're going to have to put Black people on campus, people that have had no ability to see that. And here we are. And so I just don't accept that truth is a pathway to division. Truth is a pathway uh, to conflict. Truth can be weaponized to hurt us. Truth is how you get to understanding. Uh, Truth is how you get to redemption. Truth is how you get to healing. If we lie about COVID, if we make it seem like it's not a big deal, we won't get well. If we lie about cancer, if we lie about environmental stress and the damage done to our breathing and our our world, 
when we don't deal with the truth of these toxins, we will not survive. And, it, and if we understand the power of truth-telling in our courts when we're trying to do criminal justice, if we understand the power of truth-telling uh, when it comes to environmental change, if we understand the power of truth-telling when it comes to helping us figure out the innovations that are needed to advance science and medicine, and that we have to believe in truth-telling when it comes to justice. And I just don't accept that somehow in all of these other spheres, truth is good, innovation is good, insight is good, ex- you know, thoughtfulness is good, but in justice, we have to be quiet. I don't accept that. I want to focus in on two words that have been laced through a lot of what you said here. One you were using just a second ago, safety, and the other is punishment. And I want to examine them in, in some deep detail. And let's begin with safety. The example, I've been involved recently in debates about how people use that word, what it means for somebody to say words make them feel unsafe or statues make them feel unsafe. And to me, I went to I went on a trip to Germany a number of years back, and I'm Jewish. And I was there uh, as part of what I was doing there. I went to a political convention for the Social Democrats, and the Social Democrats have a remarkable history in Germany. Um, they were against Hitler. They were um, many of them were sent to prison camps for that reason. But I was at their convention, and I remember walking the halls and hearing German spoken over loudspeakers. And having a reaction, I may have told you this in a past conversation, actually, having a reaction, just noticing that my body was getting anxious, noticing that I was having a bad reaction to this. And and when you say, you know, if you were a Jew in Germany wandering around with statues of Hitler and Goebbels, you would not feel safe. But in the American context... What does it mean to say a statue does not make you feel safe? What does it mean to you when you hear people say that words don't make them feel safe? How, how should we understand what safety is to people who come from a legacy in which they have had reason to feel unsafe or live in a present where they have reason to feel unsafe? Yeah. Well, part of what happens when we understand history, when we understand the truth of how we came to be in this place, we become aware of things that we wouldn't otherwise be aware of. And there is a continuum. And people who've been victimized by silence, who've been victimized by this history, have been victimized by racial injustice, are going to respond to things and feel a certain way that we just become mindful of. And, you know, what's interesting is if we know someone just lost a child to cancer no one would think it's appropriate to tell a cancer joke in front of that person. It, it, and what you might begin to realize is that, you know, cancer jokes aren't really funny. And, and it's not just because it's insensitive, but it's because it is injurious. That's why some of this language becomes so problematic. I grew up in a place where the community didn't want Black kids in the public schools. It's just that simple. I started my education in a colored school. And when integration came, because lawyers intervened, uh, they tried to uh, replicate segregation by putting all the black kids in one class and all the white kids in another class. And uh, my mother fought against that because I wasn't getting the academic stimulation that she thought I needed. And I got put in the other class and we'd go out at recess and the teacher's aide would tell the white kids, you can't play with that black child, and nobody would do that. And there was one 
young kid who who just was insistent on playing with me. And we would play. And one day the teacher said came and got mad at him because she was he was playing with me. And she used the N-word in that space, in that context. And it had a particular kind of harshness for me. I still remember today. I was like six or seven. And it was an injury. Now, I don't think she appreciated all the ways in which she was hurting me and that other little boy by giving that poison to him. And our mindfulness of this history changes our relationship to what we say, to what we build, to what we put up. You know, in the 1970s, we didn't deal very well with domestic violence. We minimize the pain and suffering of women who were being abused uh, by their spouses and their partners. Uh, there was a Jackie Gleason show used to come on TV. At the end of the show, he'd say, to the moon, Alice, and this threat of violence would cause everybody to laugh. If a woman called the police after being abused by her husband, there was no expectation that the police were going to arrest that man. He, they might come and pull him outside and calm him down or whatever, but they weren't going to arrest him because they didn't value the damage and the victimization created by domestic violence sufficiently to interfere with that man's life, that man's ability to keep his job, to disrupt that person's life seemed like a greater harm than the harm of domestic violence. And then we started telling the truth about domestic violence. And we used all of these platforms. Farrah Fawcett Majors made this movie called A Burning Bed and told the story of a domestic violence survivor from the perspective of a survivor. And other survivors came forward and you started hearing accounts from women being abused and within a few years, that the narrative shifted and it no longer became acceptable to be indifferent to domestic violence. And I look at where we are today because we allowed that truth telling to happen. And you can be a celebrated athlete or politician or an entertainer. But if there's a credible allegation of domestic violence, there will be consequences for you that did not exist five or 10 years ago. Truth telling is what allows us to see things and to then appropriately calibrate what we say and what we do. Mothers Against Drunk Driving changed the way we thought about the harm connected to driving while intoxicated. Again, in the 1970s, you didn't get arrested uh, for driving while intoxicated. They didn't even take your license away because it was a, an offense that crossed all economic classes and white people and affluent people, good people, would sometimes drink and drive. And so we didn't want to treat that as a crime. And Mothers Against Drunk Driving began telling these stories. They began telling the truth about what it feels like to lose your child when an intoxicated driver uh, kills them through recklessness. And that narrative shifted. What we're doing today in this country uh, around LGBT issues is a function of truth-telling about that issue. It's when we began to see the truth that you can actually love someone who is your same gender. And it's a beautiful love. It's a powerful love. And we need to recognize the power of that love that we began to think differently and talk differently about what's acceptable to say. And all of it is rooted in the truth-telling. And so I actually think how we understand harm is directly proportionate to how we understand the truth of these histories, the truth of these realities. And once we get that, we're capable of exhibiting the sorts of behaviors that make it safe uh, for everybody, make it healthy for everybody. I do believe we can create economies and societies and communities uh, where everybody is allowed to be safe and healthy. It's not 
a zero-sum thing. If you're safe, I'm less safe. I don't believe that. If you're healthy, I'm less healthy. That consciousness is at the root of so many of the problems that we see, and it's part of the political division that we see. But I don't accept that either. I think we can actually create healthy communities uh, where we can all thrive and be safe, uh, despite and no matter what our race or gender or sexual orientation or religion or immigration status or, or background. And then I want to bring in the, the the other side of this, something that you've talked about a few times in this conversation. Is it something that scares us about truth-telling? Is it we are a society that has built our institutions, and I think just as importantly as our institutions, our mythos, our culture, our intuitions around punishment. So if somebody has done something wrong or is seen to have done something wrong or says something wrong, that they will be punished. And it is always striking to me how much people fear punishment, big ones and small ones. And so how do you how do you combine these things? I think people believe that their safety is going to come through punishment. But I think just as often, the unsafety comes because people are fighting so much for position because they fear punishment, because they fear what will happen if they are the losers and the others get to punish them. And so how do you build something where people can be honest about the harms that are done to them, the world in which they live, the... um struggles they face in, in a day, but it's not automatically believed the other side of that conversation to take that conversation seriously will mean punishment. Because when it is believed that way, then there's a fight over whether you can have a conversation in the first place. Yeah, I, I just think we have misused the notion of punishment. Frankly, I, I don't know that punishment should ever be a goal. Accountability, I, I can embrace that. And how we hold people accountable, I mean, listen, <laughs> you can tell a 13-year-old that you're going to take their phone away, and they experience that as the worst kind of punishment, whereas you experience it as a way of making sure that they don't lose themselves in a world that is incomplete. It's actually rooted in a kind of commitment to their full development. You know, the difference between a parent or a caregiver who tells their child that they can't do something and someone who abuses is that the, the, the first narrative is rooted in love. It's rooted in a commitment. It's rooted in a vision. And we all need help with that. Sometimes you need somebody to say, that's not good for you and let me help you with that. And I just think we haven't found the language to talk in a more responsible way about that. You know, there's a lot of discourse going on right now when you hear people saying, you know, abolition around some of these things. And, you know, I've often said to folks, I'm a crime abolitionist. I actually want to end crime. I want to live in a world with no crime. And people will roll their eyes, but I genuinely believe, because we don't ever talk about how we end crime, that we haven't made much progress and eliminating crime. We talk about how we're going to punish crime. We're talking about how we're going to respond to crime. But we actually don't talk about ending crime. And if you give any thought to that, and the people who have given thought to it, the people who are focused on human behavior, people who are thinking about what causes crime, none of them believe that the answer to ending crime is more police or more prisons. We've got the highest rate of incarceration in the world, and we still have some of the highest crime rates, violence rates, 
And if we were serious about ending crime, we would do things differently. And that's the conversation that I believe can lead to a commitment to, to everyone's health and everyone's safety. So if we deal with drug addiction and drug dependency, not as a crime problem, but as a health problem, and we invest in healthcare and treatment for those populations, if we recognize that mental illness is a disability that requires a healthcare response, uh, and, and we invest in that, if we deal with the epidemic of trauma that we have uh, in our poor communities, we've got zip codes in this country where children are born into violent families, they live in violent households, they live in violent neighborhoods, and by the time they're four and five, they have trauma disorders because the uh, cortisol and adrenaline coursing through their brains because somebody's always shouting and someone's always shooting and someone's always being threatened is at the same level that we find when combat veterans come back to this country with PTSD. And instead of treating that trauma, we send these children to schools where the teachers shout at them like they're correctional officers and the principals treat them like they're wardens. And we threaten these children with these trauma disorders and say, do this and we'll suspend you. Do that and we'll expel you. And rather than help them overcome these traumas, we aggravate these traumas. And so, of course, when they get eight or nine and somebody says, here's a drug that'll help you feel better, they take the drug. And when they get 10 or 11 and somebody says, join my gang and I will help you fight against all these forces, they join the gang. But because we're not really trying to end crime, just punish crime, we exploit that gang membership and we add more time to their sentence. And I just think we have to understand what we mean when we talk about health, when we talk about safety. We can't put crimes in prison. That's the thing. Our lawmakers somehow think, oh, we're going to give this kind of sentence for that crime and this kind of sentence for that. We can't put a crime in prison. We put people in prison. And people are not crimes. They can commit crimes. But they're not crimes. And that means we're going to have to deal with the parts of them that didn't commit the crime if we're actually trying to help, if we're trying to in, improve things. And it's not fantasy. You know, there are countries in Europe and Scandinavia that have incredibly low crime rates because they have a vision of intervention when people make mistakes that's more than punitive, that's more than uh, we're mad at you, so we're going to do this thing. And it begins really at that level. And I, and I come back to faith traditions because. If uh, in my tradition, if you said, well, there, if, if you did this, if you did any of these 10 sins, you can't come to our church. We won't accept you because we don't believe in that. You'd be mocked and ridiculed for not having enough faith. People would come after you for saying, well, who do you believe? What do you believe? Because our faith is, is strong enough that there are no sins. You know, the, the, the Bible and, and, and these uh, documents that help people understand uh, identity through faith are rooted in stories. They're just populated with stories of people who did horrible things. And the Christian tradition, before the Apostle Paul became the author of all of those glorious letters, he was the menace Saul who killed and destroyed believers. And yet there was redemption. And it's seen as a lack of faith uh, to not actually embrace anyone who has sinned, everyone who has sinned, no matter how big the sin. And it is a similar lack of hope, lack of belief, that we can create communities that are healthy and safe that tells us, oh, well, we can't do that because that's not punitive enough. I just think we've got plenty of evidence now that if we're serious about helping families stay together, if we're serious about eliminating violence in our communities, if we're serious about getting people away from the scourge of addiction and dependency, we're going to have to start talking about the ways in which we need to provide people care and treatment and support. We're going to have to talk about ending crime in a meaningful way. And that's not more police and more prisons and more punishment. It is actually 
interventions rooted in care, a belief in what can happen when we actually help people recover from the things that are burdened. I'm so glad you brought this up. I've been <laughs> I've been trying to work on a piece that's very related to, to this issue because so many of our debates right now are about crime fundamentally. We we frame them as about police or about punishment. But it seems to me the question they most frontally pose is where do you think crime comes from? If you believe it's the product of individual choices or of, as has often been narrativized in American society, individual cultures, then simply punishing it may make some sense. But if you believe it's the outcome of conditions we create, if you believe that in another context, you or maybe more specifically I would be a very different person who would potentially commit things that are considered by society to be crime, then you end up in, in a very different place. And it seems to me this is where some of that, that historical analysis needs to actually come in. It requires thinking very differently to approach the problem of crime from how we created criminogenic conditions as opposed to what do we do with people once they have committed a crime. We may still need to face that second question, but the degree to which we focus on that second question and ignore any culpability and dismiss conversation of the first seems to me to be the fundamental distortion in our debate about this issue. I, I, I absolutely uh, agree with that. I mean, look, our prison population was largely flat throughout most of the 20th century. You know, it hovered around 200,000. It's in the 1970s when we declared this misguided war on drugs that we create a criminal construct for people dealing with addiction and dependency. It didn't mean that before the 1970s there were no people abusing alcohol. There were no people abusing drugs. There were always people struggling with addiction and dependency. It's just in the 70s that we're going to now make that a crime, and we begin to see the prison population increase. Uh, Desperately poor people have always been tempted uh, with economic crimes uh, that have caused them to sometimes get arrested. That, That was true throughout the 20th century. But it's only when we begin to impose mandatory life sentences for someone who writes a bad check or someone uh, who steals a bicycle or a pizza that we begin to create this world of high rates of incarceration. So there is a part of it that is constructed. Now, on the flip side, there are people who are struggling. We've got 600,000 people in our jails and prisons who are suffering from mental illness. When you are psychotic, and you don't have a place to live, and you don't have a place to go, and you're in the middle of a psychosis, and you're on the street, you're going to behave in ways that scares people. And they're going to call law enforcement. And when those law enforcement officers come, not trained or prepared to deal with somebody who's having a psychotic episode, there's going to be conflict. The person who is psychotic is going to resist arrest, and that person's going to end up getting charged with felonies like assaulting an officer, uh, resisting arrest. And then they're going to be taken to a facility where there's no care and treatment. They'll be convicted of that crime. And with our mandatory sentencing laws, the judge won't even be able to consider the fact that the person was in the midst of a psychotic moment uh, when this behavior took place, if the judge even knows about it. And we can't call that justice. We can't call that appropriate. We've got to understand the nature of mental illness. Now, most people uh, understand what it means for someone to be addicted, for someone to be dependent. They understand mental illness or it's to some degree. 
And I just think once we have an understanding, our thinking about culpability, our thinking about accountability, and our thinking about punishment shifts, we have a tendency to not want to be punished when we make mistakes. We want people to understand all the things that we were thinking when we said that terrible thing. We want them to understand all the things we were going through when we did that terrible thing. We want the mitigation to shape how we are viewed. And that's because we don't want to be reduced to that worse act. And I just think if we want that for ourselves, we have to give that to everybody else. And it doesn't mean that we don't expect things from people. It doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable, but it does mean we try way harder than we've ever tried in this country to avoid the conditions and circumstances that give rise to crime. Our whole model has been after you've been raped, after you've been murdered, after you've been robbed, we're going to really beat up on the person who did that. And I know from what we've learned over the last 50 years that we could tremendously reduce violence in this country if we were committed to gun management. Uh, if we were committed to health care, if we were committed uh, to mental health care, if we were committed to treatment and care for people addic- dealing with addiction and dependency, if we provided trauma-informed care, we would see something radical happen in our communities. And I just think we have to understand what we are trading off by investing in jails and prisons uh, that just add to this kind of weight of punishment instead of investing in uh, care and treatment. And that goes to the police who are overfunded and being asked to do things that they can't do. Uh, It goes to uh, our jails and prisons where we're spending billions of dollars to lock people up who are not a threat to public safety. And it goes to all of the other institutions because if you spend $80 billion a year on jails and prisons, you're going to have less money for education. You're going to have less money for healthcare. You're going to have less money to deal with a pandemic when people need special resources. And I just think we haven't even had that conversation because, again, that politics of fear and anger has made it impossible for elected officials to even talk about crime in a thoughtful way until the very recent past. Uh, And it was both parties in the 90s and the first decade of the century where nobody was willing to talk about uh, what we should be thinking uh, uh, about when it comes to criminal justice because nobody wanted to be labeled soft on crime. And it's taken all of these tragedies to begin to realize that uh, our silence about the police and about prosecution and about judging and about prisons has created an environment where we are all less healthy, we are all less safe, and we have not gotten anywhere closer to the kind of community health and safety that many of us want. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you about these issues. And, and I wish I could ask you questions here for, for hours, but I know you have other work to be doing. <laughs> so uh, I know we'll have to leave it there. But Let me ask you the question we always used to end the show, which is, what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Let's see. Um, The Souls of Black Folks by W.E.B. Du Bois. It's just so interesting to me how a century later, what he's writing about is still so relevant and still so important. I think the moment that we're in also, it's a a history book, but it's not really a history book. Uh, She writes with such grace and Beauty. Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns would be the second book. It's, uh, it's about uh, uh, the first half of the 20th century when Black families are forced to flee the American South and go to the North and West. And that the, the, the architecture of our contemporary urban landscape in the North and West is, is so directly related to this terror and violence that happens in the American South. And her book does a beautiful job of detailing that transformation. The third book, 
I'm torn because I'm so committed to getting people to understand this history more. I want to recommend something like uh, From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin. Uh, But I'm also worried that we need to engage in a deeper reflection around redemption, uh, around recovery. And that makes me want to recommend something like The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky or Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, a more more contemporary novel. Um, So I would say if you have time, read all five of those books. I love Gilead. It's such a beautiful book. All those are great, though. Uh, Brian Stevenson, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you to Brian Stevenson for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show's Vox Media podcast production.